The structure in West Maui is very old. I mean, some of those substations are over 70 years old. What sparked Maui's devastating fires? It's under investigation, and the island's old power lines are being examined. For Saturday, August 12th, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. This hour, a surge in Israeli settler attacks on Palestinians. One Palestinian activist and journalist was filming a confrontation when an Israeli soldier detained him. He took my phone and my ID, put them in his bucket and take me to the jeep. They handcuffed me. And in the U.S., conservative activists are leading the effort to ban books in libraries and schools, books about race and sexuality. Some librarians are quitting. When you attack libraries, you are ultimately jeopardizing everything that libraries do in service to their communities. First News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The death toll in Maui has risen to at least 80. NPR's Jason DeRose reports emergency crews are working to contain three separate wildfires that have ravaged the Hawaiian Islands. Police are restricting access into West Maui, but the highway is open for vehicles leaving Lahaina. The historic town remains barricaded, with authorities warning people to stay out of the area due to toxic airborne particles. They also advise people nearby to wear masks and gloves. The county says as of Friday, more than 1,400 people were at six emergency evacuation shelters on the island. A family assistance center is open this weekend in the city of Kahului for the those looking for information about loved ones who are still unaccounted for. While much of the western part of Maui is without power or water, some cell service is being restored. But authorities are asking people to text rather than talk because of severely limited bandwidth. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Maui. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel in the criminal probe into Hunter Biden. He named Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who's been investigating the president's son for years. NPR's Tamara Keith reports the White House isn't responding. Just a few weeks ago, it looked like the years-long investigation into the younger Biden would end with a plea agreement and misdemeanor tax charges. Now there's a real risk that the president's son could face trial. President Biden and White House officials have studiously avoided commenting on it. Republicans, claiming the corruption goes all the way to the president, object to Weiss being named special counsel, saying it's all part of a cover-up. There are now three special counsels actively investigating. There's Jackson. Smith, who already has multiple indictments against former President Trump, and another special counsel is looking into President Biden's document handling. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Anti-government extremist Emin Bundy is in custody in Idaho. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports he and his associates are under court order to pay tens of millions of dollars in connection with armed protests they led at a hospital last year. Authorities served an arrest warrant that's been outstanding since April. This video posted to social media shows sheriff's deputies cuffing Ammon Bundy and leading him out of a fundraiser dinner event. Authorities here have been under more pressure to arrest Bundy after a jury awarded Idaho's largest hospital system $52 million in damages stemming from protests Bundy staged last year. The outstanding warrant stemmed from an earlier court order that banned Bundy from intimidating witnesses in that civil case. His followers say they're calling for protests this weekend outside a rural sheriff's office where they believe he's being held. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Boise. This is NPR News from Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. The mayor of Haverhill estimates his city suffered at least $1 million in infrastructure damage from the torrential rain earlier this week. Mayor James Fiorentini is worried they might not qualify for state or federal disaster relief. He also says residents of a multifamily are forced out of their homes after a massive sinkhole opened near their building. Fiorentini says evacuees might not be able to return home until early next week. People who are poor up here who are hurting, whose houses were flooded, whose businesses were wiped out, are flooded and don't have insurance. They're covered by insurance, they'll be okay. But the people not covered, they're our concern and they're the ones we want to help. People in North Andover, Lawrence, and Methuen are also dealing with flooded basements and water damage. On Friday, Governor Healy visited businesses that are damaged in North Andover. In the meantime, short term, do all we can to support the resiliency of the homeowners, the business owners, and communities who have just had to bear an incredible uh, burden. The governor plans to hold a meeting next week to explore ways the state can help. The annual sales tax holiday this weekend runs through tomorrow. Shoppers can buy most items under $2,500 without paying this state tax. Many retailers offer in-store and online deals throughout the sales tax weekend. And hundreds of Tufts Medicine employees will be laid off as part of the sale of its laboratory business. State disclosures show that includes 242 employees at Tufts Medical Center, 251 at Lowell General Hospital, 81 at Melrose Wakefield Hospital. They'll be let go in mid-October. And this is the final day to shop at any Christmas tree shops. The chain, founded 50 years ago, filed for bankruptcy. Many of the locations have already closed, but Christmas tree shops are open for a few more hours in Avon, Foxborough, Linfield, Shrewsbury, and Somerville. Scattered showers and thunderstorms tonight, low around 70. Showers likely a thunderstorm tomorrow, mostly cloudy, low 80s, and mostly sunny on Monday, mid-80s, 74 degrees at 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. Residents in Maui are beginning the long process of recovery after extreme wildfires destroyed several hundred homes on the island this week. The scale of the loss is horrific. At least 80 people were killed, making it the second most deadly wildfire in recent U.S. history after the 2018 campfire disaster in California. In West Maui, residents were without power for days. Authorities have been working to supply food and gas to the area. NPR's Lauren Summer is in Maui and joins us now. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Daniel. Authorities have been assessing the damage in Lahaina. Uh, many people lost their lives there as the fire burned through the town. Catch us up on the latest there. Yeah, federal emergency teams are still searching for human remains. There are dog teams doing that. Um, so there is still a chance that that dust hole will go even higher. And we're still hearing that there are people missing. Some of that is due to the difficult communications. You know, cell service has been down on some part of the island for days. Um, but, you know, residents from Lahaina are now being allowed to return to the area for the first time. Some, of course, are finding that their houses are completely destroyed. So there's a big need for housing here. Officials say they're looking for hundreds of hotel rooms. They're encouraging people to rent out rooms that they might have available. One of the evacuees I spoke to said he's thinking about going to Ohio to stay with relatives for a while. Wow.
So obviously the, the evacuees have been dealing with their lives being upended. Um, and it also sounds like it's difficult for people who didn't even lose homes. Yeah, I mean, around Lahaina, the power has been out for days, meaning people have been losing the food in their refrigerators, that cell service is a problem. Um, and in some areas, officials are also warning residents not to drink the water, that it might be unsafe even if they boil it. So it's really exacerbating an, an already tough situation. Wow. How, how are people coping? Yeah, I spoke to one resident, Jennifer Potter, and she said, you know, people are really doing their best and they're banding together when they can to get through it. There's a lot of desperation on the island. I'm speaking with my husband who um, is working with some of the local restaurants right now. They've got food trucks that they're actually stocking with food from the restaurants that is now perishable. You know, and in other towns around Maui, as you drive around, you just see volunteers with big flats of water and food. They're loading it onto trucks to drive it to West Maui as well. So, you know, it's a it's a very close-knit island. Everyone I've spoken to here knows somebody affected. Lauren, do we know what caused the fire in the first place? Yeah, there's still no information about the cause yet. This is an ongoing investigation. But the resident I spoke to, Potter, she actually has another connection to this issue. Until last year, she was on Hawaii's Public Utilities Commission. And she says utilities have known for a while that power lines need to be made more resilient to wildfires. The infrastructure in West Maui is very old. I mean, some of those substations are over 70 years old, and they're certainly not as reliable and as effective and maybe even as durable as we would like to see in these kind of storm conditions. The utility here, Hawaiian Electric, did put forward a $190 million plan last summer to make the grid more resilient. It includes technology that can prevent power lines from sparking fires in high winds. And Potter says it's not moving fast enough, in her opinion. Um, it certainly is something that California's electric utilities have had to do after power lines sparked some major fires there. To be clear, we don't know that power lines were involved in this fire, but she thinks it should still be a wake-up call given Hawaii's fire risk that, you know, more needs to be done. Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk. She's in Maui. Thank you, Lauren. Yeah, thank you. Russia has launched its first mission to the surface of the moon in nearly half a century. Its aim is to become the first country to carry out a remote, uncrewed landing on the lunar South Pole. As NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, the Russian moonshot comes with Soviet space nostalgia in the air and the war in Ukraine behind the scenes. The Luna 25 mission blasted off early Friday from the Vostochny Cosmodrome in Russia's Far East. Russian space analyst Vitaly Yegorov says the image of a Russian Soyuz rocket racing into the dawn sky was admittedly beautiful and the easy part. The real intrigue will be the landing, he tells NPR. The Russian probe is expected to reach lunar orbit mid-next week before attempting the first-ever remote soft landing on the moon's south pole on August 21st. No easy task, says Yegorov. It's a demanding and complex operation. Many countries have tried unmanned landings and crashed at that stage. Russia will either join them or it will be a breakthrough for modern Russian space technology. The hope is Luna 25 will spend the next year on the lunar surface conducting a range of experiments, most intriguingly, a search for signs of frozen water within the lunar rocks and soil, says Roscosmos head Yuri Borisov. Water opens up the serious prospect of constructing lunar bases that could become a start pad for deep space exploration, Borisov told media following the launch. 
The Lunar 25 mission was years in the making. It also comes amid Russia's war in Ukraine, loading the lunar rover with unexpected geopolitical baggage. In the months leading up to launch day, the Kremlin made no secret. It saw the Russian space program as inheriting the country's go-it-alone ethos in the face of a hostile West. In an impromptu and very televised meeting with workers at the Vostochny Cosmodrome last year, Russian President Vladimir Putin noted the Soviet Union had always existed under Western sanctions, and yet went on to launch the world's first satellite, as well as the first man, and later the first woman in space. We did it all in complete technological isolation, said Putin. Do you really think modern Russia, with its technological capabilities, can't do the same? And he pointed to Luna 25 and future missions as symbols of the country's continued space prowess. Yegora, the space analyst, says this is all Kremlin propaganda. Putin intentionally fanning Russian nostalgia for Soviet space age triumphs. In turning back the clock, says Yegorov, the Russian leader is trying to fuse a cult of victory in space with ongoing efforts to bring Ukraine back under Russian control. A giant banner in support of the war effort was even hung at the launch pad. It all creates a singular image. We're flying to the moon and the stars, just like we did in the Soviet Union. Now let's remake the Soviet Union back on Earth. But for that narrative to hold, Luna 25 still has to make that moon landing and do it fast. India has an unmanned mission already orbiting the moon. That spacecraft is expected to attempt its landing on the moon's south pole around the same time as Russia's. It's a sign that even as the Kremlin embraces its Cold War legacy of competition with the West, new players have entered the space game. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. This weekend, thousands of hackers are gathering in Las Vegas at DEF CON, an annual conference dedicated to hacking and cybersecurity. NPR's Shannon Bond is there to find out what people are hacking these days. Hi, Shannon. Hey, Daniel. So what's the scene like out there in Vegas? Well, you know, DEF CON, they call it Hacker Summer Camp. It's part of the series of security conferences that take place in the summer here. It's nice and hot. Um, and I will tell you, it does kind of have a bit of a festival vibe. Like walk, watching people walk by me right now, there are folks here wearing costumes. Some people are literally wearing tinfoil hats. Um, there are people who are selling and trading these new badges with like light up LED symbols on them. One guy even had one you could play a video game on. Um, there's a scavenger hunt. There are all these contests. They're called Capture the Flag. Uh, and people come here from all over the world. And, you know, it's a really interesting array. It's you know, computer scientists, community college students, you know, people who work at federal agencies, even some little kids here. Wow. Okay. Nerdy hacking summer camp. This sounds great. <laughs> is, this, is this like people hunched over keyboards? What, what are, what's going on there? Yeah. I mean, people are hacking all kinds of things. I mean, you, you can break into it. It's here, you know, cars, voting machines, medical devices. There's an area where you can learn to pick locks. And in fact, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who are really experienced at breaking into devices. People tell first timers here at DEF CON to be careful of their devices. Uh, I met a college student from Miami. Her name is Genesis Guardado, and she's attending the conference for the first time. She said DEF CON has inspired her to up her cybersecurity. You can like hack into Wi-Fi's, people's hotel rooms, and like get your credit card information. It's pretty wild. Um, I've got my RFID blocking, I've got my VPN, I've got everything. 
to secure myself. Because, of course, you don't want to get hacked at the hacking conference. Right. <laughs> on the less than a personal device level, um, there's also a lot of focus this year on artificial intelligence, right? We've been talking so much about you know, chatbots like ChatGPT, Google Bard. That's a big focus here. Huh, so are, are people actually hacking ChatGPT? Yeah, there, there's a contest. It's probably the thing that's getting the most attention here. Thousands of people have been lining up for this contest um, where the point is to make some of these chatbots go rogue. So they are testing out ChatGPT as well as tools from Meta and Google and other companies to see if they can get them to produce misinformation or bias or security violations. Like, you know, can you get the AI to make up something about a politician to reproduce you know, sexist or racist stereotypes? Can you get it to give you private information like a credit card number? Uh, and you get points if you're able to do this and you know, that's what people are competing for. Oh, wow. So have you seen any successful hacks on ChatGPT? Yeah, you know, we, I, I talked to a couple people, uh, you know, somebody was able to get it to divulge a credit card number it wasn't supposed to. Oh, wow. um, you know, I talked to folks who, who got it to, to give instructions about how to surveil someone without their knowledge, you know, using you know, apps on your phone. You know, there are a lot of things you can get these, these apps to do. What's the point of the whole contest, though? Well, for winners, it's obviously bragging rights. Um, so they get some expensive uh, computer equipment. They get to go to a live hacking event this fall. You know, for the companies that are participating, you know, this is important to them. They do this kind of testing internally, but you know, here at DEF CON, it's a much larger set of people from many different backgrounds who are, who are testing this stuff out. And they're hoping they're gonna find problems that the companies aren't even aware of. And then they'll use that data to help improve their system. I should say the contest is also being backed by the White House. It's part of the Biden administration's push for responsible development of AI. You know, the president, lawmakers, they're grappling with how to write rules for this fast growing field. And the hope is this contest is gonna be part of these efforts that will make these models safer for all of us. That's NPR's Shannon Bond, trying not to get her phone hacked at the annual DEF CON hacker convention in Las Vegas. Thanks, Shannon. Thanks, Danielle. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up at 6 on WBUR on the Moth Radio Hour, teller of Penn and Teller discovers his love of magic. A musician describes life on the road with a disability and a man attends Shabbat services while deployed in Iraq. The Moth Radio Hour starts at 6. If you'd like to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston, and you'd also like to get a first crack at tickets, we'll sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Just go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. 76 degrees at 518. Thanks for listening. I'm Susan Levy. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham with the ice cream window to beat the summer heat. Open until 9 each night, scooping local Crescent Ridge ice cream. VolanteFarms.com for more info. And Innuendo, the Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is happening now. Shades, blinds, shutters, and drapery at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In Hawaii, authorities are using cadaver-sniffing dogs to locate those who didn't survive the wildfire on Maui that's left at least 80 people dead. Hundreds of homes and businesses were destroyed. Hundreds are listed as missing.
In South Korea, protests today against Japan's plans to release radioactive water from the crippled Fukushima nuclear plant that was damaged in a tsunami in 2011. Activists fear the effect on the marine ecosystem and on food grown in nearby countries. And in women's soccer, England beat Colombia at the World Cup today and now advances to the semifinals. Well, they will face Australia on Wednesday. That will determine who gets to compete in the final. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. Drive through the Israeli-occupied West Bank, as I have done a lot this summer covering the region for NPR, and you'll see poster after poster with the Hebrew word for vengeance, nekama. The United Nations says there's been a rise in the rate of attacks by Israeli settlers against Palestinians. Beatings, burning cars and homes... And just last week, the killing of a 19-year-old Palestinian, Kusai Matan. This has been happening since the rise of Israel's most right-wing government in history, with senior leaders who are themselves settlers with a record of extremism against Palestinians. Their ultimate goal is occupying more and more land from Palestinians. Some of the recent settler attacks have come after deadly Palestinian shootings of Israelis. But many attacks have been unprovoked. And as a result, several small Palestinian communities have completely packed up and fled. The attackers are often large vigilante groups of Israeli settlers. They're called hilltop youth, living on West Bank hilltops under Israel's protection. Unusually, the U.S. State Department and Israel's Army Chief of Staff, Police Chief, and Domestic Security Agency Chief have all called these settler attacks terrorism, but there have been very few arrests. We reached out to a Palestinian journalist and an Israeli journalist to hear about their own reporting on this. Basel Adra is a Palestinian activist and journalist in Masafer Yatta in the occupied West Bank. And Hagar Shezaf is an Israeli correspondent for the Haaretz newspaper. She joined us from Jaffa in Israel. We'll hear first from Basil describing one confrontation he was filming last month when Israeli forces detained him. So as journalists and activists, I was called by neighbors that their settlers harassing them by grazing the, their sheep in the Palestinian field. And when I arrived, more settlers joined that settler and they start harassing the shepherds. And there was violence because the settlers created this violence in the, in the place. Uh, the police and the army come and directly they invaded houses in the, in the community looking for uh, boys that they throw stones as the settlers claimed to the so- soldiers. And then the officer came at me and said, open your phone and show me what you filmed. I told him this is illegal and there is a law and I'm a journalist. I show him uh, my ID as a journalist. He said, yes, uh, this take time. And they want the videos now. I told him the police is here. 
they can ask for it. You can ask the court, but uh, I can't show it to you because I don't know who you are. He say, now I have another way to take these videos from you. So he took my phone and my ID, put them in his bucket and take me to the Jeep. They handcuffed me, covered my eyes and take me like inside the Jeep, started driving. After a short while, like about 10 minutes, they put me down from the Jeep, start pushing me uh, from my back. I wasn't see anything because my eyes were covered. And the soldiers, when I asked them, they asked me to shut up. They say, shouted me, shut up, you're a dog. We know who you are, what are you doing? After several hours, they drive me back to the entrance of the village and that officer came and gave me uh, my phone and my ID back. The police don't come, don't arrest these settlers. Even after we film them, we record everything and we go to file a complaint in the Israeli police station. These settlers does not like no one is stopping them from that. But as, as I mentioned, the Israeli soldiers come to help them doing it. That's Palestinian journalist Basil Adra describing um, one of the recent settler attacks that he was filming. And, and the Israeli Union of Journalists called Basil Yur detention appalling and a serious violation of freedom of the press. I want to turn to Hagar Shezaf. Um, Hagar, you've been reporting on a recent killing that just happened last weekend. What, what happened? Last Friday, a Palestinian was uh, shot dead by a settler. He was shot dead following about two hours of uh, basically clashes that erupted after settlers came into Palestinian private land. And um, I mean, I, I spoke to witnesses from the village of Burka, uh, where the attack happened. And they said that at first, you know, a few settlers were grazing uh, in a privately owned Palestinian land. Then Palestinians came there in order to basically chase them out. More settlers came. Settlers and Palestinians threw stones at each other. Settlers burned a Palestinian car and also used live uh, fire, live ammunition against the Palestinians. Um, and at the end, the result was uh, a young man who was uh, killed. And he was just 19 years old. Yes, he was just 19 years old. And uh, yeah, so he was uh, so he was shot dead by them, and a settler was actually severely injured at the incident as well. The settler who was injured is the main suspect. And tell us about there's another suspect who has a connection to the current Israeli government, right? There's another suspect who was arrested. He's actually now in uh, house arrest. Um, and he's a very well-known uh, character in the Israeli far right, in the younger generation of the Israeli far right. His name is Elisha Yered. Um, he, for a few years, he's very young. He's in his early 20s. And for a few years, he you know, was some sort of like a spokesperson for the hilltop youth, like we call them. And then... Um, when the new Israeli government was formed, he became a spokesperson of a member of Knesset, the Israeli uh, parliament, uh, called Limor Son Harmelech. Uh, she is a parliament member from the Utsma Yehudit party, which is a far-right Jewish supremacist uh, party headed by Itamar Ben-Gvir. The national security minister. Right, the minister in charge of the Israeli police nowadays. So you're describing one of the suspects in a recent 
uh, murder case against a Palestinian who has a direct connection to a member of Israel's current ruling governing coalition. What is going on here, Hagar? I mean, uh, on the one hand, Israeli defense officials and the U.S. are calling um, these acts of terrorism. On the other hand, we see this connection uh, with the current Israeli government. What is Israel doing about this? Right. So I, I think the first thing that is quite interesting and that is happening now is that there is a certain rift, I would say, between the Israeli security establishment and the Israeli government, or at least some very senior Israeli politicians, because it's very clear that the Israeli police uh, actually tried quite hard to keep Elisha Yered in detention and he was eventually released for house arrest. So you see these different kind of uh, forces that are pushing to different directions. Uh, and in this particular case, because I think the political stakes are quite high, you see that very clearly. Well, Basil Adra, let me end with you. How are Palestinians organizing to respond or to prepare for these kinds of attacks? How, how do you see the next weeks and months looking? It's, um, it's really very hopeless and we don't see any, any good vision for the future with what's going on, especially a lot of communities, small communities, as, I, as, I, as I'm saying, start leaving uh, their, their villages after what happened in Hawara and Termosaya and Borka that the settlers reached and burned houses and cars. But look at Hawara, for example, they burned dozens of houses and cars. A lot of families were homeless, but there is like, as Hagar saying, a weekly and daily harassments by settlers and soldiers toward Palestinian communities in order to ethnic cleansing the lands from Palestinians to push Palestinians out of this land to annex it uh, as Israeli land and to take it for these settlers and these settlements. And uh, what's happening here uh, on the ground is different with what you say that they are calling this uh, in the ministry as a terrorism and the, U the U.S. calling it terrorism, but on the ground doesn't change and only change is happening only very bad and the settlers and the soldiers by their forces is really changing the de facto on the ground in order to steal this land and so the settlers can have it and steal and settle in it. Basil Adra, Palestinian activist and journalist, thank you so much. Thank you. And Hagar Shezaf, Israeli journalist with Haaretz, thank you very much for being with us, Hagar. Thank you. Even with the U.S. team out of the running, record-breaking millions are tuning in to watch the Women's World Cup. And now it's down to the semifinals. Next week, Spain battles Sweden, and Australia squares off against England. Meanwhile, far from that spectacle, just outside downtown Kiev in Ukraine, a professional women's team is training during wartime. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin and producer Katerina Malofieva went to check it out. Young women are warming up on a beautiful green pitch, passing the ball and hyping each other up. It's perfect soccer weather, breezy, a few stray clouds, cooler temperatures after an overnight summer storm on a Saturday morning in late July. But this is Kyiv, and the country is at war. I'm here to watch a friendly match between two professional women's teams. 
Our hosts, Shakhtar FC, represent Donetsk, one of the cities close to the eastern border with Russia. But the club hasn't played there in years. Yes, from 2014. If we talk about football, it affected traveling abroad. If we talk about life, it affected my parents financially. Now, the whole family had to move to Kyiv region. They've been here for more than a year since the moment of the invasion. For players like Ilivizieta Molyaduk, the war started a long time ago, back in 2014. But she says that playing for Shakhtar, it's always been a dream. Because I'm myself from Donetsk region, at that time it was a dream to play for them. That's why I joined them. Her team lives and trains in Kyiv now. It's safer here, relative to the front lines in the east. But the war has left its marks on all these women. If there's a missile alert, the game will stop abruptly. For now, all is quiet, except for coaches yelling on the sidelines. Shakhtar FC are in orange and black. They're playing a team from Kharkiv in blue. Within the first 30 minutes, a tall, thin woman on Shakhtar receives the ball at her feet. She leans back and takes a difficult shot from outside the 18-yard box. The ball sails across her body through traffic into the top right corner of the net. Shakhtar is up a goal. Her teammates gather her up in a celebratory group hug. But what you wouldn't know is that the goal scorer lost her father just days ago. He died fighting on the front lines in the fiercely contested city of Bakhmut. We stay with her, help her financially, also some girls who are close to her, stay with her overnight. It's much better to play than to be alone by yourself. Holovac Victoria is 26 years old, the captain of Shakhtar FC. Being on a team and playing the sport they love, these women say it helps them cope with the trauma of war, while also proudly representing their country. Sport in general helps to overcome stress. When I asked her, did she play with you together? She said, yes, yeah, she scored the first goal today. It was a great goal. Like so many young fans around the world, they're rooting for their heroes at the World Cup. Like Danish star Peniel Harder, Alexei Puteas, the two-time Ballon d'Or winner from Spain, and Jessica Silva from Portugal, who played against the United States in their third match of the tournament. Silva is Oleksandra Krevska's hero. She's from the west of the country. I would like soccer in Ukraine to develop on a professional level as fast as in Europe. I would also like to play in a professional championship among the professional teams. When I watch the FIFA championship, I see there is room to improve. Professional women's soccer is still developing in Ukraine. Only two years ago, clubs were first required to have a female squad. And there's still a lingering cultural attitude here that soccer is a boys' sport, people tell me on the sidelines. When I ask the players about their dreams for the future, they say they hope their Premier League will grow, to be like the European leagues whose players are at the World Cup. Like a lot of things here in Ukraine, dreams of progress might be delayed. But these women aren't standing still. At the end of the game, the players shake hands and return to the side of the field, huddling together. This is the last practice match before their season starts. The war drags on, Ukraine is making slow progress in its counteroffensive, reclaiming territory inch by inch. Meanwhile, these women will look for victory on the field and for strength in each other. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News, Kyiv. This is NPR News.
90% of adult Americans need to eat more vegetables, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. An easy way to do that is to toss those veggies into salads. Reporter Kyle Norris has been doing just that in his home kitchen. I'm going to chop up this uh, half a bell pepper. It's red for some bright pop, and I love the crunch and the taste. Mmm, pretty. And he's collected a few tips for NPR's Life Kit about how to make everyday salads better. Salads can be nutritious, a fun way to eat vegetables, and great for hot weather because you don't need to cook anything to make a salad. And they're customizable. This may sound obvious, but don't put things that you don't like to eat into your salad. That's what Chef Jay Guerrero says. Always start with the thing you want to eat. Find inspiration by what's in season. Maybe asparagus or strawberries or tomatoes or squash. Guerrero says you can even start with something unexpected, like shredding up some barbecue chicken and adding a few potatoes. But then I also have some like red onion to provide like a bite. And then maybe I'll put in some radishes to give me some crunch. He says use a creamy dressing and sneak in more vegetables like shredded cabbage. And suddenly you have an entire meal. As you add ingredients, go for variety with texture and flavor. As a kid, Guerrero's dad made the same salad every day. It's a salad you'll find in plenty of Filipino households. The sweetness comes from the green beans and also from a little bit from the tomatoes as well. And then you have salt from your fish sauce and like that kind of deep umami flavor from the fish sauce. Throw in a hard-boiled egg, and you have a solid salad with different textures and tastes. To add texture to your salads, try nuts for crunchiness. Guerrero loves candied nuts. For sourness, add things like sauerkraut or kimchi. And for bitterness, try mustard or dandelion greens. Annette Saxstetter is a naturopathic physician who gives this tip to her patients. If you look at your plate, I want to see your plate every meal, even breakfast be at least a half vegetables. So that could be salad and other vegetables. She gets her salad inspiration from the rainbow. It's kind of a cliche, the colors of the rainbow, but it's actually a great way to think about it. So you've got greens, but then I like different shades of greens. I'm looking for some reds, looking for some purples, also maybe some white. Those rainbow colors find their way into what Sackstetter calls her bowl of life salad. And it is a deep dive into texture and color and flavor and crunch. It's got lettuce, spinach, rainbow chard, radishes, and a handful of cilantro and parsley. And sometimes she adds grated carrots or beets or cabbage. You can make your salads taste good with salad dressings. Bottle dressings are all right, but Sackstetter says they can be pricey and high in sugar. Try making your own vinaigrette by combining a fat with an acid, something like olive oil or canola oil, along with lemon juice or vinegar. And the three-to-one rule is a good place to start. That means use three parts of the fat to one part of the acid. And try mustards, spices, and herbs, along with salt and pepper, to switch things up. Put that dressing into your salad and use a big bowl and toss it with your hands. And one final tip from Sackstetter. If you want some support upping your veggies, find a salad buddy to share ideas and recipes with. Doing things in community and to do it with support and encouragement can really make a difference. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Norris. This is NPR News.
And this is 90.9 WBUR. So glad you're with us. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up at 6, the Moth Radio Hour, stories will include the notoriously quiet teller of Penn and Teller on his love of magic. WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. And while a pledge is appreciated, it is not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. It's 76 degrees at 539. Thanks for listening. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is happening now. Shades, blinds, shutters, and drapery at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has fired all of the leaders of the country's military recruitment centers for allegedly accepting bribes and laundering money. Some are also accused of helping to transport Ukrainian men of draft age to other countries to avoid fighting the war against Russia. Nigerian authorities are investigating the partial collapse of a mosque that left at least seven people dead. It happened as worshipers were gathered for Friday prayers. There's no word on a cause. And the popular Perseid meteor shower will reach its peak activity this weekend in the late hours tonight and into the pre-dawn hours tomorrow. And star watchers are expecting a great show. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. As the number of book bans has grown around the nation, so has the toll on librarians, kids, and the country. NPR's Tovia Smith examines the larger civic, financial, and human costs involved. And please be advised, this story contains some brief references to sex acts involving children and suicide. It's about a year since the start of what one librarian here calls the Troubles. That's when once boring library board meetings in Livingston Parish, Louisiana... Are you listening? I am. ...became bitter brawls over books some consider too sexual and harmful to children. More recently this summer, tempers continued to simmer. After a tense board meeting, one board member confronted a conservative activist and demanded he stop insinuating that she's a groomer. He denied using that word, but made it clear he sees her as fair game. You're now a public person, so you talk about what I need to talk about. 
it is a new normal. It's not just books under fire, but also library administrators, teachers, and long-beloved librarians. Around the nation, they're shouted down by parents, vilified on billboards, reported to the police, and fearing for their safety. I had an actual death threat that they were coming to get me. Click, click. School librarian Amanda Jones says she was targeted after she spoke out at a Livingston Parish Library Board meeting against what she called book policing, and her words were twisted online. This was, she advocates for the teaching of anal sex to 11-year-olds. She's pushing pornography and erotica to 6-year-olds. And then the comments, we gonna put your fat, evil, commie, pedo in the dirt very soon. Jones says she was terrified. I was hyperventilating, like... Like I didn't leave my room for days. She ended up on medical leave, lost 50 pounds and chunks of hair, and was so scared she started carrying a gun. Her case may be more extreme than most, but she's hardly the only one feeling the heat. It's scary. This is the first time I have not felt entirely safe in my job. This Livingston Parish librarian asked not to be identified. Because they will fire me in a heartbeat. In decades of library work, she says, she's never seen this kind of exodus, including even the library system's director and assistant director. It was like rats escaping from a sinking ship. We have lost some excellent people. The new director of the Livingston Parish Library System, Michelle Parrish, says staffing is down nearly 30%. When you're in this environment and then you have the choice to go to a place where it hasn't reached there, then why wouldn't you do that? I would if I, you know, if it were me. Librarians quitting here and around the nation are often doing so at great personal cost, like one in Texas who asked not to be named for fear of provoking the same backlash she was trying to escape. She says she left retirement money on the table because she just couldn't take it anymore. It was like a dark cloud over me all the time to feel like an enemy, a groomer, all these things. And it just made me feel kind of sick all the time. Giving up what she considered her calling, however, brought its own pain. It's making me tear up because I just felt terrible grief, tremendous grief. Another librarian, Latasha McKinney, also had a hard time quitting her school in Oklahoma that she found hostile to LGBTQ and race-related books. I always thought that I would be the type of person who would just stay and fight. I wouldn't be the type to run. But McKinney says staying felt too big a compromise. Her grandfather was kicked out of a public library in the 50s because he was black, she says, and that's largely why she became a librarian. You know, for representation, for access, for, you know, and now we're going to remove some of the access to books. And I was just like, no, I'm not. I'm definitely not going to be the one to participate in this. Something has shifted where you have a lot of people who, you know what, they're like, okay, this is it. This is where I get off, you know, and it's extremely concerning. It has a ripple effect on communities. Sonia Alcantara Antoine is national president of the Public Library Association. A recent PLA survey shows 73% of public libraries now cite staffing as their top reason they're limiting services. Libraries are more than just the books on the shelf. And when you attack libraries you are ultimately jeopardizing everything that libraries do in service to their communities. So right now we have closed the Denim Walker Ranch for Sundays. 
We are down quite a few man hours. That recent announcement in Livingston Parish means there are now no libraries open Sundays, much to the dismay of those looking for the air conditioning, the free internet, or the books. What about this elephant? Oh, yeah. Megan Simmons and her three-year-old daughter were crushed recently after they set out for a much-hyped family trip to the library on a Sunday. We all got in the car and we were like, oh, let's get this book. And then we made it all the way here and I was like, oh my gosh, the library is not even open on a Sunday anymore. So we had to turn around and had a very upset child. I'm trying to find a nonfiction book on Sacagawea. Let me see what we can find here. Even when the library is open, patrons may be feeling the pinch. The Livingston Parish librarian who asked not to be named says people are waiting longer to find someone to help them with a book or on the computers to file their taxes or sign up for unemployment. Because one person can't help ten people at one time. I'll be with you in a minute. I'll be with you. So, yeah, I feel it. It's a similar story a few states away for library director Allison Grubbs. She's in left-leaning Broward County, Florida. But because the state is a hot spot for book restrictions, she says people are too afraid to apply. So she, too, is cutting. We've had to close an entire computer center because we just don't have the staff. And then computer classes, uh, finance, literacy, health education. And that's a tragic disservice to our communities. The ongoing battle over books is also costing libraries in real dollars as they spend countless hours responding to book challenges, sometimes by the hundreds. Lisa Varga, executive director of the Virginia Library Association, puts the price at millions of dollars. You're talking about the admin who receives the request. You're talking about the FOIA officer who has to answer anything, the school board attorney, the superintendent, the principals, and all the library media specialists who then have to be flagged. This has a real cost. Those challenging the book see that as the price of protecting children. But others see greater risk in removing books, which could make marginalized kids feel more isolated or depressed. It really felt kind of personal, and it's, it really saddens me. Thomasina Brown is a high school senior in Nixon, Missouri, where an outspoken librarian was transferred away. Brown, who identifies as queer, says it was crushing to lose such a staunch advocate for LGBTQ-themed books, including one of her favorites about a girl discovering her sexual identity. She very well could have been me. And so when they called it inappropriate for children, it kind of felt like, I was inappropriate as well. It's one of the reasons Amanda Jones says she decided to return to her school librarian job this year in Livingston Parish. Jones says a dozen or so LGBTQ students she's taught have died by suicide. I just think I have a responsibility. You have to speak out. Your silence is compliance. So when they want me to be quiet, I always say I'm going to roar. At the same time, Jones worries that the rising vitriol swirling around books will lead to violence. You know, what, what is this hate rhetoric inciting? I was, I, I was scared that someone mentally unstable was going to come up to the school to get me and in the process harm a child. On another level, some say what's ultimately at stake in all the brawling over books is nothing less than democracy itself. You know, Russia bans books. That's not what America stands for. Carolyn Foote, a retired librarian turned activist, worries about the slippery slope. You know, first maybe it's books that have mature content, and then it's a book about race, and then it's a book about Billie Jean King because a parent didn't like that she was gay. And then it's, well, well I don't like the way that book talks about the police. 
you know, it just completely ignores the fact that we're a democracy with a First Amendment. Check them out. Put them right up here for me. I just need your library card. Thank you. You're welcome. Polls suggest a majority of Americans oppose book restrictions and want to protect intellectual freedom, as opposed to the smaller but strident faction of conservatives who say they want to protect kids from inappropriate content and ensure parents control what their kids read. One of those conservatives is Livingston Parish resident Benny Renninger. That's what's wrong with the world right now is the indoctrination. Somebody's trying to push an agenda, and you don't need things that are causing confusion and kids confuse little minds. No one's trying to ban books, Renninger insists. It's just about ensuring they are age-appropriate. But he says he does believe all the furor over cultural issues like this one is becoming an existential threat. We're a nation divided, so you can't have civil debates and we're going to destroy ourselves. Wait a second, let's count for the comments, Civil discourse has certainly taken a hit in the Livingston Parish Council, where member Gary Talbert is one who's been blasted as something of a firebrand. In retrospect, Talbert concedes he may have stoked the rancor, and it is taking a toll. We politicize crap that doesn't need to be politicized. It's like, you know, all one way or all another, and there is no happy medium. And so if we all listened, then, then I think that we would realize that people don't eat their kids for supper. But in the next breath, Talbert's right in it, bashing some LGBTQ people as instigators. Yeah, there are times that I've been in New Orleans and the decadence parade was coming down the street, and I thought that is just ridiculous. Some of the they were wearing is not acceptable to be outside in any way. Community standards need to rule. Residents will have their say on whether they think libraries violate community standards when library funding comes up for a vote this fall. It seems that the most effective way to take care of issues is with the purse strings. You know, you're not seeing the light, it's time to feel the heat. Conservative activist Michael Lunsford has spent years raising the heat in nearby Lafayette Parish and leading a stealthy but steady campaign that replaced board members he considered not quite on board. He's now using the same playbook to, quote, reset the Livingston Parish board. And as for librarians feeling the heat, Lunsford shrugs. I've gotten my fair share of death threats. That's just kind of how it goes. Besides, Lunsford says, librarians really shouldn't complain because they started it. I just would like to remind you, shots were fired by the other side. <laughs> These books are new. They haven't been there for 30 years. You know, we, we haven't had this book on how to perform sex acts on someone else. That's, that's just nasty stuff. And all of a sudden, it's become a problem. And, you know, we'll say this far and no further. It may be the quintessential cost of polarization that it begets even more polarization. The point's not lost on many librarians fleeing for friendlier ground, that it ends up dividing the nation even more deeply into separate camps. Tovia Smith, NPR News, Livingston Parish, Louisiana. And if you or someone you know is in crisis, please call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, 988. <laughs> Inflation is not just an issue Americans are dealing with right now. Britain is experiencing some of the highest inflation in Western Europe. Almost everything from food to fuel to rent is getting more expensive in the UK. 
except for one staple of British life, as NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from a rainy London. Brits huddle under awnings at happy hour, bemoaning a cost-of-living crisis. My rent's gone up a lot recently. I've watched things go up in price, normal things that I buy, a sandwich at the shop or something like that. But for pub-goer Finn Westbrook, grabbing a pint after work, it's non-negotiable. I guess in other countries, people go for a coffee with their friends, we go for a beer here, this is what we do. Recognizing that, the UK government this month cut the tax on pints in pubs. Here's the UK's finance minister, Jeremy Hunt, announcing it in a video clip. Well, we're calling this the Brexit pubs guarantee. The duty for a pint in a pub will always be less than the duty for a pint in a supermarket. The government calls this the biggest overhaul of alcohol tax in a century. It does not have much to do with Brexit, though. The UK could always set its own tax rates. It likely has more to do with an election coming next year. And the British equivalent of kissing babies on the campaign trail is pulling a pint in the local pub. But when Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who is actually a teetotaler, did a photo off behind a bar at a beer festival. Prime Minister, oh the irony! He got heckled mercilessly. Lauren, should we go to the bar? Yes. Claire Barrett is the Financial Times consumer affairs editor, and we grabbed a drink. Given tax policy in Britain right now, what should we order? I'm just going to stick with what I love, the quintessentially British drink of gin and tonic. Now, Claire must really love her G&T because this new tax scheme could give her wallet a hangover. Gin is more expensive, so are most wines, because tax is now based on the drink's alcohol percentage. I'm very fond of a Malbec from Argentina. Often they're 14 15%. That could go up by nearly a pound, or about $1.27. So most drinkers may actually have to pay more, despite how the government is spinning this. I don't think, however much they've had to drink, the British public <laughs> are that stupid. We all know that the tax screw is being twisted. The tax screw is being twisted, she says, and government coffers will be filling up, which is the whole pint, sorry, point of this. <laughs> There is something to raise a glass to here, though. Weak draft ale is getting cheaper, up to 11 pence cheaper per pint. That's if pubs pass this tax savings on to customers, though. Now, 11 pence is about 14 US cents, and not enough to win bartender Lewis Monroe's vote, he says. Not that much these days because a pint is about six, seven quid. That's almost $9. I only go to my local, which is a rundown pub. It's pretty scummy inside. I go there because it's three pounds for a pint. The only thing better than a drink, he says, 